So um, I, I was called a little bit after four, excuse me, I was texted by Will asking to teach. And uh, I was headed back from Bangor. And um, this is kind of just why I'm, I'm justifying my scatterbrainedness. But um, my, my thought was I'd teach on Genesis 12 for whatever reason. That was the thing that the Lord had laid on my heart. It is. It, it picks up with the blessing of Abraham. But what has been going on in my life lately as far as the ministry I've had has been with strangers that walk by. Because you guys know I've taught a handful of the children of the parents that sit in the room. And um, I haven't been teaching for about 10 months now, nine months. And uh, the Lord had called me to sidewalk evangelism. And it's it's been incredible. But what you find uh, in sidewalk evangelism is so many people in the U.S. do desire some sort of spirituality. And they usually refer to it as some sort of higher power, right? And... Um, they don't want to prescribe to any one thing because if they say one religion is true to the exclusion of others, that's intolerant, right? It's, it's judgmental. You're condemning other people. But what you find, and I'm sure many of you know, is that people don't actually think a lot of their views through. And engaging with people, I've just, I'll just ask them simply, do you think if God exists that he could and would desire to reveal himself to people. And they say, I don't see why he couldn't. If he's God, he can do what he wants. I don't know if he has. And I would say, and, and I, I, bring, I, I just asked them, uh, can I present to you a reason why he would? And they said, sure. and most people say, sure. And uh, by God's grace, I bring them right to Genesis chapter 1. You know, I, t I talked to them about the creation that God set in motion, um, how he created and the order he created, the fact that man was his crown jewel. And I take that back. Women are actually his crown jewel. He said it's not good that man should be alone, right? And then he created woman. And then he said it is very good, right? So it was, in fact, the completion of creation and Eve that uh, crowned God's creation. And there was that blessing, and you guys know it. I actually had a conversation with a girl today who's reading reading a book on Taoism, um, which is kind of like Confucianism, Confuci Confucianism, right? Um, do we know what that is? No, I don't have a great idea, and probably not many of you do. But essentially, it's, it's, a, it's a moral law code. And one of the things that he writes that she's reading in this book on Taoism is there's a quote that a man, the author, writes that when you see the face of God, as every time you see some person after that, you see in them the same face. And that actually made me smile because what it makes me realize is people can't deny God's truth. Right. Uh, what is it? It's Romans chapter one. It says uh, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness for since the creation of the world. 
his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood, uh, are clearly seen being under um, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse, right? So it's, he's saying there is a natural revelation that reveals things to us. So people, and this is a quick rabbit trail, but people that are in the pro-life, the pro-choice camp on abortion, right? They're suppressing that natural truth. There's a man who doesn't know Jesus and, and probably is pushing him off to write a book on this Taoist moral law code, but yet still sees the image of God on the face of every human being. And it was so easy to bring her to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where God says, let us make man in our image, right? He makes man in his image as a crown jewel of creation, and he gives him dominion over the creation. At that point, you guys know what happens, that as he places Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, they're tempted by the devil. Uh, Isaiah 14 talks to, uh, tells us about the devil's fall, about Lucifer's fall, how he desires to be like God, to be above the throne of God, and in that he fell from glory. He, Ezekiel 28 tells us he was the um, anointed cherubim. He led worship in the Garden of Eden. Right, and then in desiring to be above God, he fell. He he deceived Eve. Adam uh, followed in the temptation. And you guys know, most of you probably know the account of the curse. And I'll read it to you. Of course, the Lord comes to them in the garden and says, "What is this that you've done?" And Adam points fingers. He says, "The woman that you gave me made me eat the fruit." Um, the woman said, it was a serpent who deceived me. And the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And that's a great, it's, it's like an amazing apologetic place to stop and have conversations with people uh, that, you know, the strangers walking by. You just talk to them about, you know, snakes have hip bones and we don't know why. Uh, I would say God has told us why. There are, in fact, hip bones on a snake, and, and God has said, you will go on your belly all the days of your life. And also, the snake uses its tongue to taste the dirt in the air to know what's in its surroundings as it travels. But here's, here's the thing that I get caught up on with them, is I tell them, even though God has blessed a hu the humanity and given them dominion over the earth, he, they rebel against him, and then he leads into the curse that he's going to pronounce on man and woman, he, he starts it with the blessing. And in verse 15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman that is a serpent and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Right? It's the promise of salvation. It's the promise of redemption. And I talk to people about how this is the first prophecy of Jesus. And many of us have probably already heard this. Many of us already know this. This is the first prophecy of God's redemption through Jesus Christ recorded in Scripture. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He pronounces the curse. Of course, he says you're going to have, you're gonna have um, pain and, and childbearing and bringing forth children. And then he tells the man, he tells Adam that you shall work the land and toil it, it, by the sweat of your brow. Uh, I, I then I move forward with them about how God establishes, even with the rebellious people, 
he establishes an elect people group in which he's going to bring the Messiah into the world through. Even before that, so the bulk of my teaching hopefully tonight will be from Genesis chapter 12, but even before that, you see the election of, of Noah, right? Because in Genesis chapter 6, the Lord says, All the thoughts and intents of man's heart are only evil continually. Tells us, but Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. And it tells us about Noah. He was, uh, he, you know, he walked upright. He was perfect in his generations. He walked with the Lord. And um, in that, he's delivered from the flood. So you work your way through Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. And then you get to, to chapter 10. And it tells us about the descendants of Noah through his, through his sons. Chapter 11, uh, it tells about how all of humanity came together and the plain of Shinar, right? And they desired to build this, this tower. You guys know about it. It's the Tower of Babel. And in the Tower of Babel, they desired to, to build it to the heavens as a memorial to the heavens. And they were going to worship the knowledge uh, of, of the stars. We, we also see that, um, it, what's it? Um, S, not S, astrology, right? And one of the things they say is, Come, let us, in verse 4 of chapter 11, come, let us build our, ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Right? That's kind of reminiscent of God's initial uh, decree when he made man. He said, let us make man in our image, and in our image we will make that. We will make him. We will make him. We will make them male and female. Right, let us do that. The triune God saying, let us make man. And then they're saying, let us do something, not for the glory of God, but for our own glory. Guys, why am I, I'm at, why am I bringing these points up over and over again? One of the things that you, you point out, that you get the opportunity to point out to people in evangelism is that constantly the problem with the world is people. Constantly, the problem that you see with governments are the people that's governing the rest of the people, right? There's, there's this constant problem, and it always points back to people. And what we see in God is a gracious, faithful God who constantly works through people to fulfill his will. And um, toward the end of 11, right, because I could read through it, it, it but you guys understand at the Tower of Babel, which means confusion, Babel. He, he confuses their tongues, and from that point, they all disperse. It says in verse 8, So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Right? You can look at this as uh, a curse, but at the same time, it's a blessing, the fact that God wasn't allowing man to fool himself into thinking he could build a utopia apart from him, but that he was going to scatter them and they were going to fulfill, they were going to fill the earth. And this is something Ken Graves brought up at the men's conference less than a month ago, that people that live in more urban areas rather than, you know, the city, um, they tend to recognize God in creation more than people that are surrounded by only the works of man, by skyscrapers. It, the ones that toil in the field with their hands and take hold of the fruit that the, the land brings forth tend to recognize God in that, 
rather than the ones that only ever see it by going to the store and buying it off the shelf. It's, it, it's, I, I thought that was profound when I never thought of that. But there's a blessing in that. And at the same time, you guys know the commission from Jesus Christ was that, uh, and you will be endued with power, and you will, set, you will spread my gospel first to Jerusalem, to Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And what, what we see and what we know from church history is that the apostles largely stayed in Jerusalem. And there was a lot of work. There was thousands of people were getting saved. But the, at, at the point where right before Stephen's martyrdom, the, the gospel wasn't going out to the other, uttermost parts of the earth the way Christ had commissioned them to. So what what we see is Stephen get stoned. Um, Saul of Tarsus, before he became Paul, is leading this massive persecution in Acts chapter 8. It says this huge persecution came against the church and they were all scattered. Again, we see God sovereignly working in a natural way to perform to, to, to perform his will, right? Because it was never God's intention that at the Tower of Babel people would be scattered and never be saved. But he, he, he writes to us very plainly in Romans that people can know him and call out to him simply by re- recognizing his eternal power in Godhead, which is displayed through natural creation. And you see that the more we're spread out, apparently. And um, then it gets to this part in the last part of Genesis chapter 11 where it talks about Terah. This is part of Shem's descendants, right? Um, that's where... The, the Semite, Semitic, it's a Semitic religion that we, we hold to, and it's, a, we're, it's descendant from Shem. So that's where that comes from, if you care. Anyway, Terah is a descendant of Shem. It says, this is the genealogy of Terah in 11 verse 27. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot, and Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren, she had no children. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandsons Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. What we learn about this whole thing, the next, the next verse is kind of critical. I'll just read the beginning of it. It says in chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord had said to Abram. So my conviction is that the Lord had already said this to Abram before it is now being relayed to us in, this chrono- in the order we have it laid out. We learn from, from Stephen's address to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7 that the Lord of glory appeared to Abram in Ur of the Chaldeans. So it wasn't that the Lord had said to Abram in Haran. It was that the Lord had said to Abram in Ur of the Chaldeans when he's living with his father, he appears to him, right? And he, he makes this promise to him. We can read through it. Get out from your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the promise is made in Ur of the Chaldeans. We're, we also learn 
in Joshua chapter 24 that um, when Joshua is addressing the uh, the congregation who has been led out of Egypt or coming into the to the promised land, he's addressing them saying that your forefathers worshipped idols in other lands and, and lands over the Euphrates, right? He's, he speaks specifically specifically of Terah. It says, Terah, the father of Abram, worshipped foreign gods in, in other lands. So what we know is that as an idolater, Abram has a vision of God where he appears to him as the Lord of glory and suddenly his life's turned upside down, and now he's telling his family that the Lord of glory appeared to me. You guys got to kind of imagine um, imagine the setting where you're surrounded by people um, involved in pagan worship, and one man is suddenly saying to his father, right, you ha- we have to leave. We have to go to a land that God is going to show me. Unfortunately, unfortunately, that's not how God called Abram to leave. We're going to see the fruit of compromise later on in this chapter, but Abram call, God called Abram to leave his family, to separate himself to a land he would show him up without, um, apart from his family. But there's actually a, uh, there's a rabbinic legend, and of course it could be true, I have no idea whether it is or not, but about how Uh, Abram led his father to faith because there's tradition rabbinically that Terah was not not only a worshiper of idols, but was also a seller of idols. And the legend, the the tradition goes that uh, a time that Terah went off to run errands, Terah, the father of Abram, Terah went off to run errands. He left Abram in charge of the shop. While he was out, a man came in seeking to buy idols from Abram. And Abram simply looked at him and asked, how old are you? And the man would say 50 or 60, right? And he'd respond, and yet, you worship something made today. And in, hum- and in humiliation and embarrassment, they would turn around and leave. There's another part of the tradition that states that while his father's out, a woman comes in with wheat and says, here, use this to make food for the idols, right? Because they would take these idols and they would put them on um, on their mantel places and they'd nail them down and they'd actually offer they'd bow down before them and they'd offer them food. So she left and Abram took the food <laughs> and Abram made he made bread out of it and uh, he placed it in the largest idols at the largest idols' feet and he took a, a wooden club and he smashed the other five idols and he left the club in the largest idol's hands. And when, when Terah came back, he asked, what happened? So, well, I can't lie. A woman came in to give me wheat to offer to your idol, so I baked a loaf of bread. And when I tried to distribute it to them, they all fought over it, but the largest one smashed the other five into pieces. And Terah shook his head and said, what do you think, I'm stupid? Idols don't talk or sp- don't don't move or speak and Abram responded, do your ears not hear what your mouth is saying? Right, and so, and this is the rabbinic tradition of, of Terah's, uh, of Terah's um, conversion to Christianity. We also see the graciousness of God because in it, I say Christianity, to the, the, the worship of the one true God, right? Um, 
the worship of the one true God that promised redemption through the seed that would come through the woman. But even in it, as he departs, it says in verse 31, that they departed, they went out from the earth of the Chaldeus of the land of Canaan, semicolon, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. Um, I don't know if this land was named before or after Haran died, but I have I have something something tells me that either this land was named after Haran when he was born by Terah, or Terah named Haran after this land because that's where they were living. And in leaving Ur of the Chaldees to go to Canaan, he only got as far as Haran and then had to stop for some nostalgic reason. That's just speculation. But what I do know is initially the scripture tells us his aim was to go to Canaan, but he only made it to Ur of the Chaldees. There was some, there was some conviction in him to go to, to Canaan, but he didn't make it there. We also learn that the days of Terah were 205 years. In chapter 12, verse 4, it says, Abram departed as the Lord had spoke to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So that means, and here's just more, you know, things to kind of fog up the, the the narrative that's going here, but maybe confuse you a little bit more. But that means that uh, Terah was 140 years old when he had Abram, which suggests to me that Abram wasn't his firstborn. Abram's only listed first in the genealogy because of his place of significance, right? I would assume based on this that Lot, uh, Abram's nephew, later called Abraham, is incredibly close to Abram, if not older than Abram, because of um, the fact that Haran died before his father, Terah. So maybe he was much more aged. I, you know, obviously, it doesn't, he doesn't have to be 140 before he can have children. But anyway, um, this leads into the promise. The promise the promise is made to Abram, and it seems to be contingent on the fact that he get out from his country and away from his family. Uh, so I just I have to I have to contrast the graciousness and faithfulness of God with the world, because in this we see the Lord had said to Abram, right, and. We actually see Abram take a compromised approach, yet we still see God working through him. We still see God blessing him and accomplishing his purposes through a compromised approach. I read of it an account that happened to a school teacher. It was, um, it was cited in a book called Jezebel's War with America, written by Dr. Michael Brown. And it was an account, I believe it happened in two, 2016, where a school teacher... I can get more information if, if you guys desire it, but uh, I'm going to have to kind of sum up what I remember of the account. But the school teacher said, under, bef- with good conscience before God, he could not refer to a, a biologically born female as a male, someone who was transgender, identifying as a man. He could not refer to them as a man. And he took a compromised approach. He actually said, I won't call him, sh- I won't call her she. I'll just, I'll address you, you know, uh, I won't uh, try to offend her with feminine pronouns, but he'll use a neuter pronoun instead, but the LGBT, whatever that follows, you know, um, 
I don't know how many acronyms there were, how many letters there were in the acronym in 2016, but um, the the activist group no insisted totalitarian adherence to their uh, their desires. It was no if if this biologically born female is now a male, you need to you need to refer to him as a male, as a man. And he said in good conscience he couldn't, and he lost his job. And he, his, his whole reputation was smeared, and it, it, it wrecked a large part of his life. He was willing to take a compromised approach, you know, and it was because of his convictions before God. But what you see so much from the world is an unwillingness to tolerate even a compromised approach. What that leads me to is Abram was called to start a nation that was to be a blessing to the whole world. There are certain things the world wants wants to push on us as far as, you know, calling women men and calling men women. There's probably other crazy things too. But they still aren't throwing people in jail in this country for preaching the gospel. You know, it, it's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I think it's 15. He says, I delivered to you first that which I also received that Jesus Christ was crucified according to the scriptures, was buried, and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, right? That is our message, that he was crucified for our sins, excuse me, according to the scriptures. He died for our sins and uh, was buried, and on the third day he was raised according to the scripture. That's our message, you know, and we got to get out there and we got to share it, right? That That is the blessing that we are to this world. Some of us would say, like, but the Lord of glory didn't appear to me the way it did to Abram when he was in the Ur of the Chaldees. I need to see I need to see a miracle like that if I did if only I did, you know, I know I'd be compelled. I would I would move, I, I would share the gospel, but Jesus says Jesus says if you don't believe the words of Moses, you wouldn't believe even if you saw someone resurrected from the dead. Jesus is simply saying the word of God is more powerful than a miracle is. Allow the word to be the thing that resonates inside you and changes your heart. Remember he says in John chapter 16, he says, it's good that I go away because unless I go, the advocate won't come. But if I do go, I will send him to you. He says of the Holy Spirit that he'll bring to our remembrance everything that Jesus has taught us about him. Right? He'll give us a mouth to speak when we're put on the spot. We, ha- we have a calling. Right? Not everyone has received the gift of an evangelist, but we're all called to share our faith. And in talking with, with people, they get it's so it's so postmodern, it's so crazy. They get like this glimpse of there's like this sparkle in their eye when you talk about the fact that God has made them promises and He's preserved them in His Word, and we can see the preservation of the Word through archaeological findings like the Dead Sea Scrolls, right, 2,100, 2,200 years old. And um, yet when, when you get to the culmination of the fact that the revelation of God is, is manifest in Jesus Christ, a lot of them, you know, the, the, I had a conversation with a guy today who said, you know, I, I think that's beautiful, but I've heard that there are that there are different ways to interpret Genesis, right? He goes right, but I mean, 
I presented the gospel to this guy. I don't really know how he gets right back to Genesis, but he he hung on the very first thing that I mentioned was the blessing. There was the creation and the blessing of man being the crown piece of God's creation. And and he gets right back to that and he says, um, I've I've been told that it can be taken not only not just literally, but it could be it could be figurative. It could mean could mean something other than what it seems to be plainly saying. And uh, God might not so much be a person as much as he is a force. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how did we get here? Like, we're talking about prophets that have recorded the coming of the Christ. Um, I mean, I referenced Isaiah. That's that's at least 700 years before Jesus. But then Moses recording what God said in the garden 4,000 years before Jesus. Um, anyway... Uh, so I listened to him, right? Because so many people, they, they don't even see the, uh, the craziness, the incoherence of their own, their own thought pattern. And so I listened to him talk about it. And I, I say, I, I just ask him, um, if he's, if, if he's heard of the big bang theory and he said, yeah, of course, of course. I said, you know, the reason why scientists have postulated of this theory is because what they understand about, energy in a closed system is that it always works toward a state of equilibrium where all of the energy inside of the system, believe it or not, the universe is a closed system. There's nothing outside of it. And, uh, um, and then someone to argue, you know, I can't remember what it's called like a multiverse, but there's absolutely no evidence for a multiverse. So that's not even something we're going to chase, but the energy inside of what's encapsulated inside of our universe is within a closed system. And if it were eternally old, then all of the energy would, all of the places um, in the universe would have reached a uniform temperature. But because we can see things like stars, these massive balls of burning fuel, and the fact that they haven't burnt out, it shows us, it shows us scientifically that sometime in the finite past, all of space, time, matter, and energy came into existence, right? And I said, and this is something, and I'm telling this guy, this is something we understand through physics and the laws of thermodynamics. I said, energy can't be the thing that created us. So this is just abstract energy because if it, because it, it, it's not eternal. It came into existence sometime in the finite past. That's what God has um, caused us to understand through the study of his creation. And uh, and so I, I simply get to the point that if something were to create all space, time, matter, and energy, then it would have to be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, and immensely powerful. Because if it were any of those things, then you would then say that space preceded space, which is in, in itself is a self-contradiction. I, I, I submitted, I said, I submit to you that the God of the scripture is not energy, but it is, it is a man a man, it is a being, it is a person that is immensely emotionally invested in your creation, right? In, in your existence. And um, we go through really what, what Abraham's line was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a blessing to all the world. You guys know that when Jesus comes into existence, when Jesus, uh, not into existence, you guys know, um, excuse me, that was terrible. When Jesus comes to this planet as a person, right? When God the Son 
becomes a person and comes to this planet, he has very harsh words for religious hypocrites because the line of, uh, of Abraham, you know, the descendants of Abraham weren't a blessing to the world. They were usurping. They were, they were domineering other people, I should say. They were using their religious place as a, as a place of dominance, and, and Christ was correcting that. But the blessing about it, the, why it's so incredible is that God still used, um, he used a man with a compromised commitment to him, and he brought his Messiah into the world. You see prophecies all along the way. It didn't happen immediately, but you see these prophecies of who he is, where he's going to come from, what he's going to be like. There's 60 major messianic prophecies. There's 270 ramifications of those prophecies recorded in the Old Testament. There's more than 300 prophecies of what the Messiah would do and how it would affect life, humanity, culture, society. right? And all of those are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And what does it tell us about him? It tells in, in Micah 5 too that he's the one from everlasting. He's Bethlehem, you, 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 though you are little, the one from everlasting is going to come from you, right? Uh, Isaiah 9, 6, that he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's not just anybody. This is, this is God himself. That is, that is the blessing. The blessing is contained in the word. God over and over again, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Jesus said in uh, Matthew 24, um, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. The blessing is found in the word of God. And that is why God has preserved it. And that is why we, you know, we should take serious, and I'm not saying you don't, but I'm saying the one thing above all other things that we should make as a foundation and cling to is the word of God and the promises founded in it for God's children. Because there's actually, there's a strategy that, uh, that a guy named Greg Kokel, I listened to a series um, called the Ambassador Series, that he, he uses in approaching um, the trustworthiness of the Word of God. And he uses his fingers and his fist. And so I'll kind of go through it. Hopefully it'll stick a little bit. But he, he talks about um, how each one, of his, each one of his five fingers and his fist remind him of the faithfulness of God's Word what's contained in it, and what it can do for our lives and the lives around us. He says, Pinky reminds him of prophecy, right? The prophecy that, uh, you know, Isaiah 53, the, the suffering servant would come. All of those things line up with the person of Jesus. Uh, Psalm 22, that his, his hands and his feet would be pierced and his heart would be like wax in his chest, right? A broken heart. The prophecy of, of who Jesus is. Of course, there's other prophecies made of, uh, the 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 landscape of the world about um, how God would change the directions of rivers and dry them up and and things like that that we can also point to but the greatest fulfillment of God's prophecy is in the person of Jesus Christ so pinky is prophecy and then he uses the ring finger um, he he points to the fact that we wear a ring on our left hand often if you know if we're married we wear that ring and um, he he talks about that it's a circle and it, it signifies our unity with our spouse, with our husband, with our wife, right? So prophecy, unity, 
And then he talks about how that there is this one unified message that is spread out through more than 1,500 years and 40 different authors where they all agree on the same thing. They all have the same revelation about God. They have different aspects of it, but nothing contradicts. He, he, makes, he, he references a challenge that John McDowell and another man made that he said, just take 10 guys, just 10, not even 40, in the same cultural setting that all have a PhD on the same subject and then ask them about cultural issues and have them write their answers down. Just 10 different things, 10 different questions. So you're going to get answers all over the board. It's, it's never uniform. But you take 40 different people living in the Middle East over a span of almost 1,600 years, and they have the same message about God. That's miraculous. The, the middle finger is our biggest finger, right, on most people. And um, he talks about how that ans- the Bible answers all the big questions in life, right? And you can go through that. You can build your own case for that. The index finger, he says, the scripture is the index of the world. It gives um, origin for everything that we see around us. We can see everything pointing back to the scripture. The thumb, right? We can do the thumbs up. He says it reminds him of the fact that there's been so many lives. I mean, the greatest example I think of is Saul of Tarsus, right? And I think that's because we we put so much reverence in the word of God. But there's been lives, apart from Saul, of horribly wicked men that have had their lives completely flipped and in service toward other people. And finally, the fist, right? He said the Bible is a fighter. There's that um, the account of the... French Enlightenment thinker Voltaire and his uh, his prophetic utterance, right, that the Bible and, and Christianity would be extinct within 150 years of his lifetime. It wouldn't last any longer than that. But it, and then accordingly, when he died, um, his mansion was used. Uh, I don't know if he had a printing press or not. I know he had a lot of uh, literature on, on enlightenment thinking. He may have had his own printing press before he died, but um, maybe you've heard that the Geneva Bible Institute took over his estate and used it to print Bibles, right? It's The, the Word of God is a fighter. It, it doesn't change. It hasn't changed. And it will it will overcome the greatest odds. It will, it will change people's hearts and minds. And, guys, that's where... That's where the things that we struggle with, right? The things that we go through. This is quite a long rambling, ranting thing. But the things that we go through, the things that we struggle with, remember, it is the promises God made in the Old Testament about the insufficiency of the law. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3 that the law is a curse. If you think you're going to attain godliness through the law, you're cursed. You can't do it. But God writes in the Old Testament about the insufficiency of the law. He already knew it. He he inspired both Jeremiah and Ezekiel. He said in the 36th chapter of Jeremiah and the 31st chapter, excuse me, of Ezekiel in the 31st chapter of Jeremiah, um, that he was going to ordain a new covenant. And in it, he was going to give men and women his spirit and write his law on their hearts and minds and cause them by his spirit to keep his law. That is the new, that is the new covenant. That is the New Testament. That is the new, that is the new promise to us. Right? It is it is the blessing to the world, and we still have 
the ability, we still have the opportunity to proclaim it to a world around us that is incredibly naive when it comes to spiritual things. They, they don't understand the self-contradictory aspects of, of the things that they believe. Um, and they don't, they don't realize that God has revealed himself. You know, you use prophecy as an incredible tool. You use that to point to the fact that God has, in fact, revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. It moves people. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I know a lot of it's emotional initially, and it might not. It might not um, cause some long-term effect in their life. But again, that's that's not our issue. Our issue is obedience to what God has called us to. Our issue is being blessed through obedience, and even in our compromise, our compromise situation. Right? We see that even in Abram. Um, he is blessed. He has that compromised stance. But it says in verse 4, continuing in chapter 12, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, and his, brother, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. And the Canaanites, the Canaanites were then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar, altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abraham, so Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Right. So we have this Abram. We have this account of Abram actually getting up and leaving, um, and it is according to the the word of the Lord at this point. He is moving forward in faith. The fact that he's seen the Lord of glory, he's heard his word, and he puts his faith in it. He trusts it. You know, there's there's more than two hundred and seventy. Uh, accounts from ancient cultures of a worldwide flood, right? The fact that there was a worldwide flood. Um, there are things no doubt around him that still testify to the promise that God made of a, a coming judgment, but the salvation through the ark. Remember, we're told in Second Peter that Noah was a herald of right, righteousness. He was calling people to repentance and faith. But people didn't, the, the only eight that were saved was Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, right? I'm, I'm bringing this back up. I kind of missed it when I went through Genesis 6 earlier. But Eric Hovind, who is the son of Kent Hovind, who is uh, maybe famous, maybe infamous. Anyway, he's done a lot of work for Christianity. He's done a lot of debates. And um, they're both PhDs. And they argue for a literal six-day creation, an argument for a literal six-day creation. And Eric will lead um, – he's just started recently doing this. I heard him giving an interview where he leads tours to the Grand Canyon. And in it, he actually takes the opportunity to witness to people because they understand he's a PhD, understands what he's talking about when he's looking at these geological layers. But he'll just ask them, what do you see, right? 
And they'll say, I, I mean, I see it's beautiful. How do you think that happened? Oh, man, it was probably millions of years and, you know, some water carved through it. Because that's that's the, the regular, that's the story we get from a, an evolutionary standpoint, is that the Grand Canyon was formed over millions of years laying down rock layers and, and a little bit of water, the Colorado River carving its way through it. But he, he, he says to them, what if I could present to you three pieces of evidence that more than prove that this had to be a massive flood and not just a little bit of water that caused this Grand Canyon? Right. And so, okay, yeah, so I'm open to it. So he's made this documentary. It's called uh, Genesis Paradise Lost. And it goes through a lot of these interviews. He presents um, the evidence in a very compelling way. But the first piece he talks about is the fact uh, the fact that the Colorado River, where it enters into the Grand Canyon, is actually 4,000 feet below the top layer of the Grand Canyon that's carved out by water. So his argument is that in order for it to carve through the Grand Canyon, it'd have to flow uphill for millions of years, which defies what we understand about gravity, right? He also he makes the point that there's no, um, what's it called now? He, well, he makes the point that between the distinct layers of rock that are laid down, there's no signs, there's little to no, absolutely no signs of erosion, which signals that tells us that um, the, the layers were laid down rapidly, one, one on top of another, right? There's very little vegetation, there's incredibly little erosion, it was just slammed down one on top of another. And, um, Another part, I gotta find my note here because I can't remember what it's called now. There's no delta, right? There's no delta where the the uh, mo the mud and the gravel being eroded by the water would deposit um, that that sediment. There's no delta as found in other from as naturally found in other rivers that do that same thing. And he makes the argument from that point that this is in fact evidence of God's worldwide flood. So I bring that up because Abram no doubt knew about this. This was this was a, a known fact that the, the world had been flooded and people can still observe it today. Uh, they see a promise of God made to, to a people of a coming judgment unless they repent and they see the fulfillment in it um, and it's preserved for us to now to witness in the geological layer, especially in places like the Grand Canyon, it, it is it is to to remind us that God is faithful again, that God is faithful to keep His word, and of course for us that means escaping from judgment. That for for the believer, for the child of God, that means the ark, right? It, it doesn't mean the wrath of God, but it means Jesus, who is our Savior. In in chapter twelve, verse eight, it talks about. Abram pitching his tent between Bethel and Ai. He builds an altar. He worships the Lord. And uh, Bethel means house of God. And this is just kind of a, a symbol. It's kind of a, a, a descript, um Yeah, it's, it's, I can't think of what to call it at the moment. But it's, it's this image that God is painting through the, the text, through uh, what we have recorded for us in scripture, Bethel meaning house of God, AI meaning heap of rubble. And he pitches his tent in between. And of course it reminds every believer, every Hebrew believer that 
we are in this place of being stuck between what we recognize as a pile of rubble, a heap of rubble, and the house of God, you know, that, that Jesus has prepared for us. The, the mansion that Jesus said, you know, I have gone to prepare a place for you. In my house, in my father's house, there are many mansions. If there were, and I come back, um, if there were not what I would tell you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come back to receive you to myself. Right? It's that it's that illustration, it's that picture. But it says, in continuing in verse ten, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, "Indeed, I said." Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is, my, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princes of the Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh in his house with, a great, with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her, her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. So we see this problem in the fact that there is a famine in the land. I don't know exactly why um, the pharaohs come, uh, the famines come. One thing that we do know is that Abram was called to leave Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, apart from his family, right? He was he was supposed to go to this land that um, he he was going to be shown because the Lord of Glory appeared to him. Maybe there was some compromise within his own camp, right? Because we learn later that his his witness before Lot causes Lot to compromise. He sets out um, in the plain that faces Sodom and Gomorrah. There's there's actually a war where kings come in and they take Lot. And we learn at that point that Abram has 300 trained servants, right? And they go out and they defeat the kings. They take Lot back. I mean, that's a lot of people. I mean, that's just the trained servants to feed. Is this why uh, the land was unable to sustain um, Abram when he was in it? I don't know exactly. But what I do know is, again, there is a compromised position that Abram is taking. And when there's a famine in the land, he's deciding to leave the land that God said he was going to give to him as an inheritance. He said it like, what, two verses before. Um, and, he, and he goes into Egypt. And then, of course, he lies. And, and what we see in that is we see a compromise that that is surrendering the, the purity of his wife. And why is that burdensome? Why is why is the compromise that 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 gives up the purity of a of a righteous man's wife? Why is that such a, a plague for this culture? Um, for for even Abram's days, the thing is, we see that continue over into our culture, right? God said, "If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and repent, 
right? Then I will I'll hear their voices from heaven and I will heal heal their land. Abram, in this situation, he isn't he isn't reaching out to God and following him in faith. And what it's doing is it's causing him to to surrender that purity in his wife's life. She's giving in because he's the leader of, of their household. And we see that in our land. We see this militant feminism that is demanding, right, the totalitarian response from from conservatives, from Christians, from born again Christians. And um, it is the compromise that ends up surrendering, you know, the weakest links in our household. And I, I'm speaking, you know, I, I've, I, I know there's other people in the room with young children, but I'm speaking of my children. I'm speaking of, of young children. I'm speaking of our children, right? Because there is a spirit, there is a satanic spirit that desires us to compromise in a way that is going to affect our, our offspring, our relatives. And we see that in Lot. We see that in the fact that Lot moves, his, he faces his tent towards Sodom and Gomorrah. He eventually moves in, right? And his whole entire family is lost except his two of his daughters who end up seducing him with alcohol and, and causing him to impregnate them, which leads to the Moabites, right? Perennial enemies of, of, of Israel. And it's, it is this thing where we have to settle it in our hearts that God has provided enough witness and evidence to himself that we will follow him, right? As for our house, as for us, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That is what we're called to do. So often in, in conversations, I keep bringing this whole sidewalk evangelism thing up because that really is the ministry I'm involved in most now. So often in these conversations, I have to, I have to help people understand what biblical, the doctrine of biblical faith is, what Christian faith actually is, because the way it's um, portrayed by enemies of Christianity and atheists is that faith is only necessary where evidence is void, right? And the famous line by John Lennox in response was, do you have faith in your wife, right? And then Richard Dawkins, well, yeah, yes, this is awkward, you know? There, there's a reason to have faith. But the Greek word for faith is the word pistis, and it literally it talks it speaks of a trust or confidence in something that has proven itself as reliable. We've gone through what maybe three. Uh, I've I've only referenced maybe three scriptures um, that witness to the prophetic coming and ministry of Jesus Christ. Okay, and and there's more than three hundred more, and I'll bring up that line from John sixteen again. Um, just to anchor our place in, a, in, in this study, when, when, we le- when we leave a place like this, it is to receive God's word in a faith that trusts because he has demonstrated he is reliable. Right? When Jesus said, it is better for you that I go away. It's better that I leave because when I do, you're going to be indwelt with God. How humbling is that? The God of creation, Isaiah 40, verse 6, says he spread out all of creation with the span of his hand. 
And God is in God, the Son is saying, God, the Holy Spirit, the advocate, your advocate, the lover of your soul is going to indwell you and bring to your remembrance everything that you know of me. He's going to give you a mouth and he's going to give you a voice. He's going to help you take a stand in this world. He's going to remind you of the fact that God has been faithful in the past. <laughs> he took the scourging, right? You, you remember Will says it's not 39 lashes. That that was a Jewish thing. That was that was so that they were looked at as merciful, right? Th these are Romans. Romans that would kill their own soldiers if they fell asleep on the job, they'd execute them. Jesus was scourged by Romans with a cat of nine tails, the god of the universe. Said it's good for you that I go away, but before I do, I'm I'm going to lay my life down. And of course, you know, I'm I'm kind of I'm I'm paraphrasing a lot of Jesus Christ's ministry, but I'm going to lay my life down. And the God of the universe takes those lashes for you, right? His his flesh is ribboned on his back. His his organs are displayed. His um, the muscle around his spine it, it's it's being torn from him. And then he's clothed, right? With um, they uh, they. They clothe him, I don't know, with what, who knows, something incredibly painful, um, burlap, I don't know. Uh, they drive the they drive the crown into his head, right? They, they mock him, and he continues, he continues on. He says it's better for you that this happens, right? This is, this is the grace of God. This is the power of God. This is the humility of God. This is the blessing of God. This is why we can place our faith. We can place our confidence in a God that has always shown up and uh, will continue to show up. We see, we see the promise of Abraham's life witness to us through the history of the Israelites. It's not going anywhere. As long as the moon's in the sky and the, and the sun still shines, God's covenant with Israel stands. And I understand it's a very broken paraphrase, but that is the promise he made in Scripture. Um, so that is what I have for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Lord, I thank you for your word, that it's not going anywhere. Lord, it is what we build our life on. Lord, it is the word that became flesh, and we beheld his glory. The, glor the glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Lord, it is the word that imparts faith to us. Lord, it is the word that empowers us to continue every day by your grace. It's the word of grace imparted by the spirit of grace, witnessing to your grace as shown in your son. Lord, your love for us, bleeding on the cross. Help us to remember who you are. Help us to remember, God, that this land belongs to you. You have conquered this land. If we come into a situation where we are to witness to glorify your name, Lord, Remind us that this place belongs to you, that we're your servants and we have nothing to fear. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.